Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. David Wiss is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified personal trainer. In 2012, David founded Nutrition in Recovery and developed a detailed curriculum that provides specialized nutrition services to individuals and treatment centers. He has contributed to numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and works closely with individuals to help them revolutionize their relationship with food. David is a nationally recognized expert in nutrition for addiction and is currently working on his PhD in public health from UCLA with research linking nutrition to mental health across the life course. What we love about David's messaging is that it focuses on bridging the eating disorder and food addiction camps. David views every person's disordered eating behaviors on a spectrum and believes in professionally guided, individualized treatment specific to the client's needs that are determined by a comprehensive intake and assessment. He believes in using food to rewire the brain and believes public policy change is absolutely necessary for a change in the food environment. In today's episode, we talked to him about his research papers, what we should be adding into our food plans if he thinks abstinence is necessary for a food addict, and whether he believes food addiction will be recognized in the DSM in the near future. Thanks, David. And here he is. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Food Junkies podcast, and today our special guest is David Wiss, and he is going to be speaking with Dr. Vera Tarman today about food addiction, eating disorders, and some of the latest research out there. So take it away, Dr. Tarman. All right. Thank you so much, Clarissa, and hello, David. This is our first our first Food Junkies podcast, and you are our first guest. This is very exciting. And uh, I, one of the things, it's actually very appropriate that you're the first one because you have written an amazing, I have to say it again, amazing paper, a review paper on food addiction. And just for people who don't know, it's called Sugar Addiction from Evolution to Revolution. It's like a fabulous title. It captures it. And uh, uh, I mean, David, I just got it. I've read review articles on food addiction, and this is the best one. I send it to everybody uh, who doesn't believe in in this concept. So for people listening, uh, you know, a review article is uh, really useful because it gives all the research, it gives the concept, it gives the arguments all sort of wrapped up into a nice ball of information. So David, I'm going to ask you if you can comment on, I, I mean, I think the, the reason why we need the research and the theory is because we want to get this condition, food addiction, into the DSM-5 or DSM-6 or whatever is, is going to be up next. So can you say a little bit about your article and why it's so important? Yeah, thank you for that. It feels like many years ago that that one was written. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor. I've been following your work and it's it's really good to have connected on several occasions over the years and to have a meaningful and constructive conversation today about an important and as everyone knows controversial topic, you know. The uh the paper you're referring to was published in 2018, which means I wrote it in 2017, hmm. which, you know, already feels like yesteryear. We've got a bunch of new review papers that have come out, but I can yeah. say a few things about that that one. You know, at that stage, you know, we used a, a criteria for substance use disorder to look at the evidence, and we primarily focused on animal models because, you know, there was so much uh, rodent research. And, you know, one of my co authors, Dr. Avina, was one of the pioneers yes. in doing some of those animal studies. So there's so much that can be done with rodents that can't be done with humans in terms of neuroscience findings and the like. Um, but, you know, in the last few months, you know, we really put the finishing touches on a, a newer review article called Food Addiction and Psychosocial Adversity. 
Yeah. And uh, we focused on the biological embedding, the contextual factors and, and the public health implications. And, you know, I've really tried, you know, based on feedback as well as criticism to move toward evaluating this data in human studies, because it is easy to criticize rodent research, given that a lot of the contextual factors are missing. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, most people know that, you know, addiction has uh, many components that are socio-cultural and spiritual. And, you know, everyone, most people have heard of the rat park research is when you, you know, enrich the environment, people are less likely or the rodents are less likely to engage in the addictive behavior. So, you know, in the, in the last few years since that article, I've really moved toward looking at contextual factors related to food addiction so that th there would be no room for the criticism that there's gaps or there's missing pieces, right? Yeah. So when I say contextual factors, we're no longer just looking at the neuroscience, which, you know, as we did in that original paper you recommended, mostly the, the dopamine pathways and the acetylcholine pathways as well. You know, we're really trying to look at the entire picture from an individual level as well as a population health level. So how does the neighborhood someone lives in contribute to a food environment that contributes to addiction like eating? How does neighborhood stress? How does psychosocial adversity that occurs in the family, in the school, in the community alter physiology in ways that increase someone's likelihood for addiction? So, you know, it's much more robust to uh, look at human research. And now I'm starting to really think about how can adversity get under the skin, alter someone's uh, reward pathways, uh, change epigenetic expression, change someone's human stress response, change their uh, levels of inflammation, et cetera, in ways that can predispose them to addiction. And I'll say one last thing. Most people know ACE research, adverse childhood experiences, and the strong links between ACEs and both alcohol and drug addiction. Mm -hmm. So since that review paper you, you, you mentioned, you know, my recent efforts have really been in thinking about, well, if ACEs are such a strong risk factor and strong predictor of drug addiction, then why shouldn't they be a strong risk factor and predictor for food addiction, given the neurobiological overlap between the two conditions? So yeah. that's what I've been up to uh, lately. And it does feel like a more significant contribution to write review articles that are based on human studies rather than just on animals. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I will say, though, that because so many physicians are still in the in the uh, dark ages, like like five years ago, 10 years ago, it's still reluctant to even use the terminology of food addiction, that that first paper is still crucial. So I, I can see that both both of these pieces, both of your contributions are really significant. So for those of us who've already are already sold on the idea, great for the second paper. But let's uh, I, I really want I'm still using that first paper. And one of the things that we still struggle with and that first paper is so helpful is you really um, highlight the uh, the big dilemma that we have between what's the difference between an eating disorder and food addiction. And, and um, you introduced the concept of a spectrum and that spectrum might be some of the answer to that. So do you want to, I, I don't want to take away, like, let's go back to your second contribution as I totally agree with you, but there's some jewels that I still want to flesh out in the first paper. And that's one of them. Yeah. So please comment on this spectrum concept and how that might help us out. Yeah, thank you. I think that the uh, the the spectrum or continuum concept was yeah. uh, really originally introduced in the DFANG paper, which I think that we titled Incorporating Food Addiction into Disordered Eating, the Disordered Eating and Food Addiction Nutrition Guide. And that was, you know, I think really my first effort to try to integrate the idea that other psychiatric diagnoses could be helpful in figuring out what someone truly has. And at that point, I really focused on substance use disorder and, and made the assumption that if we were trying to figure out if someone had more of a food addiction versus a classic eating disorder, that by really looking at their the presence of other addictions, including drugs and alcohol, as well as caffeine and nicotine, yeah. it could be very helpful 
in determining if someone's proclivities were more toward addiction-like behavior. So if they were more impulsive, if they had higher levels of reward dysfunction, it might implicate you know, a higher likelihood of them responding well to a food addiction approach. Whereas if someone didn't have evidence of cross-addiction, it might be implica implicating that more classic eating disorder pathology is present. And, and what I mean by that, for those that are listening, is, you know, in the classic eating disorder sense, the primary assumption is that the dieting drives the binging. And in the food addiction model, the primary assumption is that the binging drives the dieting. Huh. So that seems to be the major area where people seem to disagree. It, it has to do with the with the causal structure of the conceptual model. People that do classic eating disorders uh, really believe that all all binging comes from restraint or restriction. Ah, um, good. But yeah. I'm glad you're bringing that up because that was going to be another question. What will you, you talk about dietary restraint, and I wanted you to elaborate on that. Yeah, right. that's really where my my efforts have been lately because you know I noticed a major split in in um, you know the food world between these two campsites. Right, there seems to be the uh, the food addiction camp and the classic eating disorder camp. And I always realized that there was a strong tribal component to what was going on that was kind of superseding the, the current evidence. And, and what I mean by that is people are looking for an identity as a professional, as well as a consumer. And the identity is often what closest matches their own personal experience, right? Yeah. So people that have had you know, experience with food addiction tend to believe in it. And people that uh, haven't tend to not, right? Okay. Yeah. So one of the studies that I always wanted to do, and that maybe I'll do one day, I'm just going to give away my idea in case anyone else wants to do it. <laughs> I want to do a large survey of people that work in substance use disorder treatment and ask their opinion about food addiction and compare that to people who work in anorexia and bulimia type treatment. And, you know, what I'm predicting is that people that work in classic substance use disorder settings would endorse food addiction at a significantly higher rate than people who worked in more restrictive eating disorder environments, right? Yeah. And it just goes to show that people are people, we're highly biased towards our own experience, and we're also highly influenced by, you know, our social networks. And so one of the things that I've seen is that I've come across a lot of people who believe in food addiction, but would rather not be vocal about it because they're uh, concerned about being ostracized by their peers. Because, you know, there's a very strong movement that I am a part of moving toward uh, weight inclusive non diet uh, approaches to um, recovery and to health. And I think a lot of people assume that if someone believes in food addiction or sugar addiction, that they're part of a, you know, highly restrictive weight focused uh, group of people that, you know, are the antithesis of what other people are, are moving toward. So yeah. that was the first thing I noticed that there's a really clear dichotomy between groups and that there has to be rather than an either or, there has to be a both and somewhere. In other words, it, instead of just thinking about categorizing people as you're either this or this, what about considering the intersection of these different you know, ideas? What if someone you know, was really right there at the crossroads and had classic eating disorder pathology and had classic uh, food addiction pathology. And what I realized, and this is what led me to this other review article that you mentioned called Separating the Signal from the Noise. Yes. Psychiatric yes. diagnoses can help discern food addiction from dietary restraint. That's also an open access article in the journal Nutrients. Can you define um, what you mean by that title before you explain what is yeah. in the article? Because it's a great title, but I actually would like a definition. Yeah, let's go there. I think uh, the, the term, you know, signal in the noise has been used in a wide range of applications. And, you know, I really learned to use it in a statistical set, uh, sense, you know, as a, as a doctoral student studying statistics, trying to figure out what we're doing when we're trying to get a really strong estimate, when we're really 
trying to get a, a, a good robust estimate, we're looking for the signal amidst a lot of the noise. And so the noise is going to be other confounding variables, yeah. other things that create, you know, less certainty in the signal that you get from the statistical model. And so what I learned is that, you know, there is a ton of research on food addiction and sugar addiction. So the, the signal is crystal clear, right? Like the Yale food addiction scale went through several iterations. There's yeah. neuroimaging data, there's animal data, all of it converges, you know, to tell a really clear story. So the signal exists, but the major criticism is that there's a lot of noise. And right. what I identified to be the noise is the presence of dietary restraint. And, and what I mean by that is there's a ton of research that shows, and this is both in animals as well as humans, that food addiction symptoms go up when someone engages in dieting behavior. Right. So, yeah, if someone decides to go, I'll just throw some terms out there. If someone decides to go keto and they're on a very low carb diet for two months and then they lose their 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 abstinence or their diet and they're back on uh, sugar and carbohydrates, their food addiction scores are going to be higher yeah. than they used yeah. to be, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so a lot of people in the eating disorder world criticize the Yale food addiction scale by saying that it doesn't adjust or doesn't control for symptoms of dieting behavior. Exactly. Exactly. And nor does it, I mean, I I think about Phil Wardell's um, uh, breakdown of normal eaters that are just overeating and probably because of restriction or eating disorder because of, uh, because of uh, uh, restrictive behavior and then food addiction. So that's all noise, basically. That's right. That's right. And that's the, that's the criticism is that if someone is, let's say they're highly uh, well, body dissatisfied and they are you know, severely uh, hyper-focused on weight loss and they're trying all these different diets, yeah. their food addiction signal can be muddled by the noise of dietary restraint, okay? Okay. And so yeah, the, the main uh, gist in the paper was to say, how can we create more certainty in the food addiction diagnoses, and a lot of a lot of people that do research, you know, on food addiction will include in their battery of assessments, you know, the Eat 26 or the EDEQ, which are standard eating disorder questionnaires. So you can really, you know, sort of adjust for them. Yeah. But clinicians are very confused about how to interpret. Let's say someone saying, "When I start eating sugar, I can't stop." Yeah. This is where I wanted to be helpful. Okay. So, so what is, so how do you become helpful? So how do you make, how do you distinguish the signal from the noise? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I have such a strong clinical intuition from working with 25 people a week for the last eight years that like after a few minutes of talking to someone, I feel like I have a sense of what they're like. And I'm sure, I'm sure you're similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know, the, the DFANG paper originally proposed that the presence of a substance use disorder or other process addiction can be very helpful information in figuring out if someone's the real deal or not. Now, what we did in the in the signal noise paper was take it much further and say that, you know, instead of just thinking about other addictions, I created an eight-step process. It's a, a the table in there uh, really describes a process by which a clinician can go through to figure out based on a, you know, sort of conditional, if yes, move to the next step. If no, think about this pattern. And it really focused on one, and this is all coming from memory. I'm not even going to pull up the paper. You assess the food addiction. And once you assess the food addiction, then you go on and look for dieting, dietary restraint, right? And then, you know, once you've kind of figured out if that's present or not, you want to, you know, start to think about maybe which one came first right? So the temporal sequence of the disorder onset. Right. And then and then let's talk about uh, the presence of other addictions. And then we go further and say, what about the presence of PTSD? Because we know that trauma is a significant risk factor in disordered eating as well as addiction-like behaviors. And then focus on early life adversity. And so there's a, a, a really cool kind of algorithm that someone could use to say like, okay, if, if, if food addiction's there and dieting, dieting is not, 
and substance use disorders there and PTSD is there and there's early life adversity. Yeah. And you can be really sure that the signal isn't muddled out by noise because all the evidence suggests that it's a clear signal. Yeah. Now, one of the things I did in that paper, which I really thought was uh, important, is that I didn't just say, okay, well, if all these things are true, then they automatically need sugar addiction or food addiction treatment. I took it one step further and said, if all of these things are, are, are true, in order to really make the case for a sugar addiction or food addiction based approach, you need to make sure that someone has adequate social support, other people that are also doing it. Uh-huh. You need to make sure that people have life skills so that they can cook for themselves, right? You need yeah. to make sure people have uh, resources to buy n- nutritious food, right? If someone has very uh, l- limited access to whole unprocessed food, the likely and they don't have a kitchen to cook in, the likelihood of them succeeding with food addiction yeah. treatments low, in yeah. my opinion. So that's when you know we go back to considering contextual factors. And so, yeah, the uh, the paper is designed for clinicians to really understand how you can better discern between who's a good candidate for food addiction, which I'm calling in the paper uh, exclusive nutrition strategies versus people that are better candidates for classic eating disorder, which I refer to as inclusive nutrition strategies, people that need to learn how to eat it in quote unquote moderation. Yeah. Right? Is, is there anything from what you're saying that could help the uh, the current attempt to get the food addiction in the DSM five R or six anything that you're saying that 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 we can add to our our um, contribution as it's being debated right now yeah I think there's two main things from you know my argument that could contribute to that conversation one is how you can to write we... this down because you're part of this right I'm part of the movement let's go yeah okay yeah. go ahead yeah yeah yeah. One is how can we do more research on food addiction that adjusts for dietary restraint and so that we're actually able to say with more certainty that this is a neurobiological disorder rather than just a relic of dieting, deprivation, or food insecurity, right? If someone's, you know, under-resourced and they don't have access to food, they might have much more uh, food addiction symptoms. So, you know, in in science and in statistics, we want to get rid of all the confounders. We want to close the back door so we can get a really clear signal that couldn't be, you know, argued against. But I think the more significant value, and, and this is also suggested in the paper, is that instead of thinking about it as you're either in this camp or you're in this camp, which, you know, most people would assume that the solution to this debate would be to do a study where you assigned, you know, you got 200 people that had, you know, some form of disordered eating, you put 100 people into the abstinence group, right, the exclusive, no sugar, no white flour, no fried foods, some people would even say no grains, however extreme you want to take it. And then you put people in the inclusive group where they get taught how to eat intuitively and learn how to make peace with their body, stop trying to lose weight and eat all foods in moderation and make them all fit, basically reduce the charge around those foods. Most people would think that that would be one way to resolve the debate, right? Let's see which arm of the study performs better. And you know, it, it, as a as a epidemiologist and a, and a researcher, you know, one of the things that I've I've learned is that you know, obviously, if you're doing a randomized controlled trial, you're gonna you're gonna you know distribute the differences between the two groups evenly, hopefully. So it would be a sound uh, research design. But what I really think would be possibly better, maybe not for the sake of uh, resolving the debate, but for the sake of treatment would be if we actually took people through the process of discerning them so that you could actually put them in the arm that they were best suited for. So for example, if you took those 200 people and you used table one in the signal noise uh, thing with trained clinicians, maybe three trained clinicians, and they all came to a consensus that this person based on our assessment of their impulsivity, their reward dysfunction, their PTSD symptoms, and all those other things, 
This person's a better fit for food addiction treatment. This person's a better fit for classic eating disorder methods, right? And if we could separate the 200 people into two different groups, and then you could show that both groups had really good outcomes based on a proper assessment and a, 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 a comprehensive process by which you figure out, you know, what treatment someone should be getting. I think that would make a really strong case for food addiction because what's lacking in the food addiction research space is actual studies that show uh, successful outcomes based on interventions, right? There's hundreds of studies that describe the problem. To date, there aren't any that describe the solution. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, no wonder people are critical. We don't have any studies that show food addiction treatment works. I know, but because we're still struggling with the diagnosis of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, which actually, I, I want to make sure we do talk about solutions. So uh, in, in your writing, you have a few things I wanted you to elaborate on. And one of them was this idea of um, uh, what you're leaving, the food plan, what you're leaving out as opposed to what you're restricting. So what should we be including that we might not be, if you want to comment on that? And also, I really want you to talk about the concept of abstinence, if abstinence is always necessary for a food addict. So there's two things there. You, you pick what you want to start with. Yeah, thank you. I think that most people, when they seek help, and I have a really fortunate opportunity to provide treatment services to people all over the world, you know, really want to know, you know, how to define, you know, what, you know, whether they be food, food uh, uh, addicted or, or not. People want to know what they should not eat. And, you know, in, in, in my experience, I've now moved into a lot of functional medicine testing. You know, I've taken the position of like, well, how would I know? Right. I'm just, I'm just, you know, a, a researcher and a clinician. And so, you know, I do food sensitivity testing. I do other blood tests to look at micronutrients and antioxidant things to be able to be more certain about what someone should and shouldn't eat. But what I have truly learned as a major problem associated with food addiction is that people that become reward dependent, and what I mean by that is like the brain learns to expect a certain amount of reward from the Absolutely. substance, yeah. right? Yeah, that, yeah. That's the real problem associated with addictions is that the brain is already making predictions about what it should and shouldn't get in terms of a dopamine response. And uh, what ends up happening is the long-term consequence of food addiction a lot of people think, you know, because because it's easy to measure, most people think it's about weight gain, right? And, you know, while I certainly think that that can, you know, impair someone's uh, sense of self or compromise their quality of life, really, I'm interested in the link between nutrition and mental health. So what I see is that if someone's eating mostly highly palatable foods, they're probably doing so at the expense of a lot of other foods that are not highly dopaminergic, right? right. Yeah. So for example, if someone has, you know, addiction like eating, one of the first things I might do is identify all the different food groups that they're missing out on. Let's say they're not eating, you know, one of the biggest problems I see with people is, you know, they learn to cut out fruit because they, they learned fruit has sugar and now they're using artificial sweeteners and then they're <laughs> binging on sugar things, right? That's like a, one of the most common kind of traps that I see people falling, you know, and I'm sure that works for someone, but as a nutritionist, as a behavioral health uh, expert, I could never support someone not eating fruit and using artificial sweeteners as their yeah. source of sweetness. Like I know there's people that do it. I know there's people that don't eat fruit because of the sugar and they drink diet sodas and add Splenda to their coffee. I just could never get behind that as, uh -huh. as someone that knows a little bit about gastrointestinal health and uh, neurological health, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, if someone's, if someone's doing that, I'm going to think about all the nutrients that they're missing out on from not eating any fruit. You know, I know people have problems with nuts or, or even if someone like has a, you know, a thing with nuts, like maybe we need to start thinking about some seeds, mm. right. That could be brought in. Um, okay. And so I often make the assessment of not just what might someone need to think about removing? But I really want to focus on before you remove anything, you got to have other options. Yeah. What, yeah. what are you going to eat? You yeah. know? So yeah. it's really about bringing in all this amazing food 
and I think that that approach is way more food positive, uh, and it works really well with people because people tend to think food negative or what I call food punitive, right? It's like right. it works against the whole concept of restrictive as well because we still get to eat a proper meal and a full meal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, there's a way to use the food addiction science and technology to teach people about all the amazing food that they're missing out on and should be including. And if they can learn to fall in love with those foods, maybe over time, some of the other foods will fall out. Yeah. They'll just fall out. So let's speak about the falling out. Uh, um, Do you believe that we have to fall out uh, out of sugar? Or do you think that there is room for sugar for some people? This is a big debate and most food addiction uh, would say, no, no, it's got to be stopped. But what's your take on that? Well, I think, I think the biggest problem with the question is just the word we, right? It's like when you say we, what, I mean, who are we talking about? Are we talking about people that have been diagnosed by David Wiss as the perfect candidate? Or are we talking about people who self-select in? Because what what I've learned is that a lot of people self-select in to the sugar addiction or to the food addiction camp maybe not so much because they truly have the kind of neurobiology that everyone else has. It's just because they're desperate to lose weight and they're looking for a solution. Right. So that's, that to me is a major uh, source of noise that no one's talking about. Someone says, yeah, I'm a sugar addict, but like, are you the same type of sugar addict that, that Dr. Tarman is or whatever, right? Like, and so when you use terms like we, you know, I know, I know you meant it as a, as a broad question, yes. but uh, the, the researcher in me says, let's think about the heterogeneity of effects, right? Why, why assume that everyone in the room has a homogenous condition? Let's think about how we can further stratify the group into yeah. different subsets, right? So to answer your question, if there was a hundred people that we were calling we, I might say that 20 of them might be a definite need for abs- 100% abstinence to the to the salad dressing level, right? Like hmm. not even a gram, right? Uh-huh. right. And, and then maybe another uh, 30 people would do fine just keeping it like below the fifth ingredient. Uh-huh. That the dose, the dose matters a lot for this person, right? And that once yeah. you get into the recreational doses, it becomes a problem, but they're do fine with a little bit of sugar yeah. in their salad dressing. Right. And that's the dose matters more for that person than for the next. And exactly. then for another subgroup in that hundred people, you know, what's probably true is that after doing some recovery work, you know, maybe straightening out their underlying trauma, getting to uh, making some peace with their life stressors, perhaps getting a relationship with God doing some step work, getting some really good therapy. And some of the stuff that's been unresolved starts to get resolved. They overcome a spiritual malady that sugar isn't as threatening to them as it used to be. Right. That their life was in turmoil and they were using food to reduce their negative affect and were caught in a really negative cycle. And once they got into a better place, their biology is different. So they'd be able to navigate that experience in a totally different way. Yeah. And then I would say there's probably another category of people that are, you know, transdiagnostic and that have moved through different categories and are likely to move through different categories based on their life experience. So that's yeah. where, you know, I'm really interested. Instead of just thinking about the, the biology of sugar, let's really think about what's going on in someone's life, right? Yeah. You know, it's been my experience that when, you know, and I'll, I'll, I never do the N of one, extrapolate what's true for me. To the whole world. I'm smart right. enough not to do that because I'm a yeah. clinician. But I can tell you from my experience, when my life is all in order and there's love and there's harmony and there's peace, yeah. I have a different relationship to substances like caffeine or sugar. But when I'm in uh, significant distress and I'm having difficulties with personal relationships, the way that those substances play out for me is very, very different. And so I think that's also important for people to remember is that for some people, it's more about the molecule 
And for other people, it's more about their personal experience. You know, yeah. for most people, it's an interaction between the two. Let me ask you a, a, a question that I get asked a lot. It's, and it's, 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 it's going to nail you down here. It's a hard question. Do you think it's possible for somebody who wasn't a total lost food addict that they can actually go back to square one and uh, at some point, if they fix some of those, uh, those uh, issues that you mentioned, that they can eat sugar again? Do you think that that is a possibility? I'm going to say yes because I believe that all things can be possible. If you were to ask me if I thought someone who was a crystal meth addict, who did crystal meth for 10 years and then got sober, straightened out their life, if they would be able to use crystal meth successfully again, I would say no. I would say not if they're the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. But because what I know about crystal meth, cocaine, heroin, in terms of the, the dopamine, the opioid response is significantly more pronounced than the sugar. I do think that it's possible for someone to be in recovery long enough to uh, have their brain become rewired, huh. have it such that their uh, uh, inflammation reduced, their entire biological milieu was improved and their life circumstances were improved. And they had a spiritual shift as well as a, a cognitive shift yeah. that they could interface with the substance uh, successfully. Now, that doesn't mean that I think all people would, yeah. but I do believe, and this is where I go back to my original point, that there's a subset of people that could. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest discerning factors in whether or not someone would be resilient to that exposure uh-huh. comes back to genetics. If people are more of a biological phenotype yeah, rather yeah, than a socially constructed phenotype. Right. And I yeah. think that that, that that second paper or third paper that you wrote where you're looking at the, all these other attributes, uh, well, basically you're looking at a clinical rather than, than experimental rat-based paradigm is going to answer some of these questions because we right now we're just conjecturizing. We don't know, but we will know if we can get more research like that on board. Who's going to study that stuff? David, it's such a good question. I, you know, I've been He's able to pay for that research. We need that research to rub shoulders with some of the giants in the field, and uh, you know, collaborate with some of the with some of the thought leaders. But you know, if you want me to speak honestly on it, I think that's why you invited me here. I think that in our nation, that it does seem, based on what I've observed thus far, that the 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 capitalism and the greed seems to win. Uh, and that private profits do seem to uh, take precedence over public health. And so I do predict that much of the efforts to, quote unquote, prove sugar addiction and food addiction will be stomped out by the industry. Because uh-huh. once that gets really shown, you're really pointing the finger away from the quote unquote personal responsibility. And you're really pointing the finger at these big multinational food conglomerates that make billions of dollars while everyone gets diabetes and gains weight. Right. Exactly. And so I see that as the major barrier to systemic change around sugar addiction and food addiction is that, you know, once you're starting to, to, to make this case stronger, you're really implicating things at a policy level that have widespread economic consequences that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. And so as a public health professional, I want to start really thinking about systems, right? And and so if you were to look at the, everyone knows like the comparison between the food and the tobacco, right? If you were to truly look at the tobacco efforts, you know, I I, I once kind of heard or read that it was, you know, it took decades and over 7,000 studies before public health stepped in because it was like, it was, it was no longer, uh, you could no longer uh, just kick back and do nothing while all these people were dying. Yeah. So, uh, you know, David, just, just one sec, David, I just yeah. want for people who don't know. So David, uh, you, 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 you basically, you, you have a research interest and you're a clinician, but you have since, since um, moved into public health. So my assumption is, is that you're aware of this need to get sort of a more public a political angle, and that's what you're—that's where you're coming from right now. So, what is it that we clinicians, me, the individual, my patients can do, even using that context of the tobacco? Uh, you know, what did we do? Like, it wasn't just 
the fact that there were thousands of papers, I surely there was something that people did themselves. Like, what yeah. can we do to help with this larger political public policy? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's such an important question. And so I, I almost think that as individuals, you know, as pe people of the quote unquote lay public, yes, you know, expecting to, um, you know, have a direct impact on public health policy, you know, might even be unrealistic. Like you're a, a change.org petition ain't going to cut it. Right. But let's be real human beings. We can change social norms. Like it is such a social norm that, you know, right the, the kids have cake at their, at their birthday yes. parties. And that if you don't have sugar, you're just like a poo poo to the party. Exactly. Right? And that those exactly. social norms that exist are designed to keep, you know, the system alive and well. You yeah. Know, finally, someone comes around and they decide they don't want to eat sugar. And then they're a burden to hang out with. Because yeah, they like, don't want to go to the restaurant and da 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 da. Exactly. Or they so, have to go outside and have their cake outside along with the smokers. Wouldn't that be nice? Right. You know <laughs> what I mean? So yeah. I do think that as people become more committed to improving their health, and if it's a right fit for them and they're making some dietary changes, yeah. you know, one approach that can be helpful is just to think about how can we alter what would be considered normative behavior around this topic yeah. And how can we, you know, affect that, you know, for, for, if not even our current generation, but the next generation? Yeah, that's great. Is there anything in the paper, um, uh, aside from, because you were talking about that, aside from the, the, the fact that you're moving from uh, experimental into clinical work, anything else about that paper that you want to bring out? Because your, your work is like really exceptionally clear and uh, um, comprehensive at the same time. So have I missed something that you want to bring yeah. out? I think we talked about four papers. So I think yeah. we talked about the DFANG paper, 2017, the sugar addiction paper, uh, 2018, yeah. and then the two more recent papers. One is food addiction and psychosocial adversity, and the other is about the signal and the noise. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, if I was to try to summarize some, some key considerations, you know, yeah. out of out of the more recent ones, I do think it's safe to say that, you know, having a more trauma-informed approach to understanding problems as well as a solution will be critical. Yeah. I do think that addressing underlying stress, trauma, and adversity can hopefully reduce uh, addic food addiction-like symptoms. I do think necessitating or at least encouraging more mind-body approaches such as meditation and yoga and, and some of those other things can be very helpful to, uh, you know, helping people, uh, you know, calm their nervous system per se, particularly in the face of disadvantage and, and, and distress, you know, but yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, the research has to, has to lead the way and that, you know, there's a large collection of people that have a voice you know, in 12 step communities. Yeah. And now we have, you know, coaches and, 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 and a lot of that, but, you know, using a biopsychosocial model to think about the entire system as a whole is really critical. In other words, you know, yeah. we have to think about individuals, we have to think about communities, we have to think about, you know, uh, populations, we have to think about neuroscience. We have to think about contextual factors. Yeah. And I think when people uh, only focus on one of those things, like policy or, you know, this or that, you kind of miss the entire. Yeah. Well, thread. the thing that can happen is uh, what you already alluded to before. People then just focus on weight loss. And then there's the whole, we can't adopt this model because it's fat shaming. And we want, to get a, we want to get around that. It's not fat shaming. It's actually much bigger than that. Our attempt to yeah find a solution. Well, that's such a great point, and I often bring it up is that one of the biggest obstacles to food addiction moving forward is that it's been categorized as you know a pro stigmatizing uh, camp. And I think what's safe to say is that once people really understand the neurobiology of addiction more, it can actually work as an anti stigmatizing thing instead yeah. of saying right this is a stigmatized condition. It's like actually no. There's a lot more going on than most people understand. And, yeah. you know, once people can really get a grip of what's going on with them, they can move toward, you know, the solution in a much more graceful way. And so when I do, I often do food addiction informed type treatment approaches. And I really emphasize 
quality of life, not having your brain be hijacked, uh, not being in the grips of an obsession. And I don't focus on weight at all. Yeah. I do think that people can recover from food addiction uh, and not lose any weight and just get a different mental state around food, Perfect, have yeah. sanity with respect to food. And I, I do think that persistent efforts to seek weight loss and having people quantify it and talk about being a hundred pounder and all of that. I really do think that'll work against the food addiction movement because yeah. increasingly people are becoming aware of weight stigma and are looking for that type of language as yeah. a way to say, this isn't valid. These are just people that have body image issues that yeah. don't know how to make peace with their body. And this right. is just another diet club. Yeah. And that's, that's where, you know, someone like me also is very cautious about being aligned with it because even though I'm not that, I'm sure that there's people who think that I'm that because I write papers about food addiction. Yeah, yeah, good. I think we, I think we all are on the same page as far as that goes for sure. So David, as, as we close up, is there, uh, uh, what are you working on now that you haven't mentioned? Um, is there anything you wanna just, what, what can we look forward to in the next paper? Yeah, thank you. I've actually moved into the links between early life adversity as measured by the adverse childhood experience scale and a wide range of mental health outcomes. So instead of just focusing on ACEs and drug addiction, I'm also looking at how ACEs affect uh, depressive symptoms, anxiety, uh, sleep, how it can even be a risk factor for incarceration, uh, lower levels of perceived social support. And I'm really focusing on all of the biological mechanisms by which trauma and adversity can uh, get beneath the skin and impact health behaviors. Okay, you know what? I, I should have asked you this at the very beginning. How did you get into this field? Uh, great question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, my, uh, my undergrad was in social science. I got uh -huh. into fitness. I worked as a trainer and then I got into nutrition and I ended up going back to uh, get a master's degree in nutrition where I became a registered dietitian. And then as an RD working in private practice, I became obsessed with being a better clinician. So I self-taught in neuroscience, uh, microbiome, and in hormones to really understand eating uh, behavior at, at, a, at a higher level. And then what I, I've always had an interest in food addiction, and uh, it's, what, it's my area of expertise, but I really thought that if I wanted to make an impact on food addiction, that you know, going into public health would be the way to do it. You know, unfortunately, at the university that I, you know, pursued my doctoral research, there aren't people that are into that. So I've been very uh, much on my own there. And so, you know, what what I what I end up, you know, doing and studying is other forms of life course epidemiology. So I really have gotten into understanding population health in in some uh, really important ways. And I'll tell you. As someone that does individual focused health in my office clinically, and then someone that studies population health, it's a really fascinating way to understand the human experience, to be able to look at both individuals as well as groups. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Clarissa, did you want to pick up on that with, with our final question, our uh, signature question? Yes, David, thank you so much for sharing today. Like you are just a wealth of knowledge and yeah. every time I hear you speak. I'm just fascinated. I've listened to all your podcasts and uh, definitely your Instagram lives. So our signature question is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction or food recovery, what would that be? Oh, such a fantastic question. Maybe two things come to mind. One is that I've often questioned my academic journey over the years and wondered if I should have been a neuroscientist because I spend so much of my time in the neuroscience literature as someone that studies addiction, understanding neuroscience has been extremely helpful. And I've often wondered if that would have been, you know, a more direct route towards getting uh, food addiction research out there. But an another one that I think is very relevant to our talk today is like, you know, to, to be cautious about how topics can be politicized and dichotomized and how people can make assumptions and associations with certain ideas. 
and how you know campsites can be formed and to do a good job of studying what other people are studying and that's one of my strengths right is that i'm not just a food addiction person i'm an eating disorder professional right mm-hmm. like like and i would just encourage more people to 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 do the same stop being you know one sided and really think about how you can see other people's perspectives set your own you know personal biases to the side as a way of you know moving forward in a more graceful and helpful way yeah i think you i've also commonly heard you refer to it as more of like a hybrid right yeah I, I, yeah, that's one of the key features of my argument is like, instead of picking one, why not pick the best of both worlds, Uh create a hybrid approach and help people get good treatment. So David, can you let us know where people who've been listening to this can find you? Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, our website is nutritioninrecovery.com. That's in I N it's all one word. Nutritioninrecovery.com has links to all the different uh, sites, pretty active on social media. My Instagram is at David A. Wiss, A is in Andrew. I do go live on Fridays at 4 p.m. Oh. I'm doing it since quarantine started and it's been going great. I recently have uh, opened a TikTok and on TikTok, I'm talking about addiction and recovery. I do a one minute video every day. That's wow. only within the last few weeks. So it's the same handle, David A. Wiss. I'm really hoping to get good addiction conversations going on over there. But I'm generally pretty responsive to people who send me messages through the website or through my Instagram direct messenger. I love to meet new people, whether it be professionals, clinicians, or uh, just, you know, general people seeking help. That's great. Thank you, David. I want to thank you so much. Uh, David Wiss, our registered dietitian nutritionist who is an expert in eating disorder and food addiction um, and has told us about his uh, lots of avenues on social media. Thank you so much for joining us today. Clarissa and I are just delighted. You, You were just fabulous. Thank you. This was a blast. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>